You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Anonymous is hacktivism in a hybrid war. Pyongyang's unholy ghost, fishing in the IPFS. Update on the initial access criminal-to-criminal market and its effects on MSPs. Cyber gangs move away from malicious macros. Thomas Etheridge from CrowdStrike on managed detection and response. Rick Howard sits down with Art Pagosian of Brightiv to discuss DevSecOps and identity management. And Rewards for Justice seeks some righteous snitches. From the CyberWire studio at Data Tribe, I'm Trey Hester with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 29th, 2022. Hacktivists working their mischief against Russian networks have become, the Express reports, an embarrassment to Russia's President Putin, who, like other proud spirits, cannot endure to be mocked. Website Planet has published a long history of Anonymous's engagement against Russia and Moscow's war against Ukraine. The report stresses a few points to bear in mind while assessing hacktivist contributions to any war. There are difficulties of control and management with respect to any hacktivist activity, and Anonymous is particularly difficult to direct. Tweets of official declarations of war against Russia, for example, don't really lend themselves to any interpretation other than an expression of outrage. Where there are no officials, it's difficult to see how any declaration of anything could be official. This point is an idol. One of the foundational principles of international norms of armed conflict is that war should be entered into only by legitimate authority, and that fighting units operate under the effective command of some responsible leadership. While some hacktivist groups seem to operate under state control, and indeed some like Russia's Killnet, seem little more than front groups for an intelligence service, whereas others like the now possibly retired Conti, acted as privateers in conformity at least with broad state guidelines. It would seem that Anonymous has met neither of these norms. Anonymous has evolved its tactics and techniques. Website Planet lists some of the recent developments, some of them designed to influence, others to disrupt, and still others to intimidate. The essayist is no apologist for Russia's war of aggression, but he's no fan of hacktivism either. He cautions prospective hacktivists to look before they leap especially since that leap may well be into legal trouble just about anywhere in the world. 
Digital Shadows has released a report that offers more information on the North Korean ransomware group Holy Ghost, earlier described by Microsoft on July 14th. Holy Ghost targets small and medium-sized businesses for financial gain in ransomware attacks and is known to use double extortion, which researchers define as, quote, combining an encryption of data and services with deliberate data exfiltration, end quote. The group also operates a data leak site for victims' data. Operating out of North Korea has its challenges for the group, however. The group will probably have to pay a percentage of their profits to the government. It will doubtless find it difficult to communicate and will have difficulty learning new techniques and recruiting new talent. Holy Ghost is also known to charge a lower ransom than most gangs, asking for ransoms of 1.2 to 5 Bitcoin, with a willingness to lower ransoms in negotiations. Researchers believe that Holy Ghost is a North Korea state-linked group, despite privateers and pure criminals being significantly more unlikely in a place where state intelligence does its stealing directly. We asked Digital Shadows about this, and Ivan Raihi, senior threat intelligence analyst at Digital Shadows, offered a candid answer. Quote, The exact relationship between Holy Ghost and North Korea is also unclear. However, it is highly likely that Holy Ghost is at least a state-encouraged threat group, meaning that they could be backed or supported by the North Korean government in one way or another. In addition, it is likely that the group has to share its profits with the North Korean government, as it is difficult to believe that the group would be able to operate without any type of supervision or limitations. End quote. Trustwave Spider Labs has released a report detailing phishing attacks that use the interplanetary file system. The IPFS is a distributed peer-to-peer file sharing system used to access and store files, websites, applications, and data. IPFS can also locate a file using its content address and not its location. To access content, you need a gateway hostname and a content identifier of the file. IPFS looks to create a decentralized web that looks through a P2P network where shared files are distributed to other machines acting as nodes, making the content accessible whenever it is needed. Phishing attacks that target IPFS configurations are difficult to get rid of once they're in the network, because even if malicious content is removed from one node, it may remain available on another. Researchers note that it's also difficult to detect malicious traffic in a P2P network, making IPFS an ideal platform for fishers. Multiple phishing websites have been observed impersonating such things as blockchain services and Google services, as well as emails using an abused web hosting site and mimicking a billing receipt. Huntress reports that following their discovery of a beeper thread communicating a cybercriminal's quote, help wanted ad, they've discovered a tweet by at Intel by Kella sharing metrics for a United Kingdom company they're offering up as a potential victim. The tweet highlights the fact that the prospective victim has ransomware insurance. Huntress says this tweet, along with earlier related announcements, demonstrates a trend of specialization by initial access brokers. An IAB is a threat actor looking to gain and then sell initial access to organizations. The IABs are pure play C2C operations. Being an IAB means you have specific skill sets needed to infiltrate and gain access to organizations, and you have the benefit of payment being handled, you hope, out of law enforcement's view. Kella is an IAB that specializes in trading managed service provider access, which makes them a particularly worrisome threat as a compromised MSP can lead to compromise of the MSP's customers. Microsoft's recent announcement about disabling macros by default seems to have already had an effect on criminal behavior. Proofpoint reports that it's seeing a gangland shift away from the attacks based on macros and toward other vectors. Quote, 
threat actors are increasingly using container files such as ISO and RAR and Windows shortcut files and campaigns to distribute malware. Proofpoint has observed the use of VBA and XL4 macros decrease approximately 66% from October 2021 through June 2022 based on campaign data, end quote. And finally, do you have any dirt you'd care to dish on a rogue oligarch? Well, you'll be nicely compensated. The U.S. has been looking toward the security of the upcoming midterm elections and is obviously interested in keeping Russian influence operators out of the mix. The State Department's Rewards for Justice program tweeted an offer yesterday. Do you work for Yevgeny Prigozhin and or Internet Research Agency? Want to earn up to $10 million? Let's chat. Drop us a line on the dark web. Mr. Prigozhin, a Russian oligarch close to President Putin, he ran a catering business favored by the Kremlin, hence his nickname, Putin's Chef, is known not only for his connection to the Internet Research Agency Troll Farm and Disinformation Shop, but also the proprietor of the Wagner Group, the private military cooperation that supplies Moscow with deniable mercenaries under contract. He's come a long way from laying out the Bellini in the buffet line. You never know where your career is going to take you, do you? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our own Rick Howard sat down with Art Pagosian of Brightiv to discuss DevSecOps and identity management. I'm joined by Art Pagosian, the CEO of Brightiv. Welcome back to the CyberWire, Art. Glad to be back, Rick. A relatively new phrase in the cybersecurity lexicon is something called Cloud Security Posture Management, or CSPM. Can you take a swing at describing what that means to our listeners? Cloud space, as we all know, it's a new and emerging technology space. And now the cloud 
security posture management type solutions are there to help security teams to identify potential vulnerabilities, security loopholes, so to speak, that would expose that environment to external attackers and bad actors and so on. So it really helps us put some hygiene around the cloud security environments. So these are scanners. You know, in the old days, we used to have scanners that checked for open ports, you know, around the firewall, those kinds of things. This is um, the same idea, but applied to uh, multi-cloud environments? Very similar to, as you mentioned, the vulnerability scanners for network, for uh, hosts, and so on. The equivalents of servers and so on may not exist in the cloud because cloud technologies offer uh, as a service, so to speak, right? So we still need to scan the landscape and understand what's what's visible from outside. So we're all trying to reduce the attack surface of our data islands. We have data centers, we got mobile devices, we have multiple cloud deployments. And the key and essential tactic in that effort is identity and access management, or IAM. But there's an entire galaxy of terms and phrases associated with that idea. We have identity governance and administration, IGA, which sounds to me a lot like IAM. And then we have privileged identity management, PIM, and privileged access management, PAM. Uh, can you help us distinguish between those terms? Let's start with IGA and IAM. Are those the same thing or are they, is there subtle differences between the two? Yeah, Rick, this has been one of the things that I always like, uh, I always find interesting how we get really <laughs> creative with acronyms. Uh, and um, Just let, you know, we let the marketing people go wild and we need to rein them in, I guess. <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The IGA category, Identity Governance Administration, at least from my perspective, does include the identity management. Mm-hmm. The governance piece introduces the process of regularly reviewing access and certifying because many organizations are subject to regulatory and compliance requirements. Privileged access management is also more about that subset of identities that require much higher level of security controls. Yeah, so when you throw governance into the identity government governance and administration phrase, that implies that someone's reviewing the policy. And you mentioned before, there's various types of identities out there, right? There's the people, and those can be employees, contractors, partners, you know, whoever else you want to get into your your material information workloads. But you're also there's also devices like mobile devices, like laptops and phones, and like you said, workload identities. I guess more than just applications running, there are, you know, workloads doing a specific thing. So we need to have a policy for all those things. Is that what we're talking about here? Policy in the context of security controls, there's multiple ways security controls can be enforced. Policy happens to be one of the ways to uh, enforce controls at a much more scalable or more efficient uh, way. If the specific identity or access management technology allows that policy-based control enforcement and the ongoing reviews and ability to compare what I have versus what policy I want to have, kind of, again, goes back to that posture management and identification of the gaps it helps understand what my real world looks like versus what my policy tells me I need to have. And so, of course, when we're trying to follow a, some sort of zero trust strategy, we want to make sure that there, that all these accounts, these employees, these contractors, these devices, and now workloads, they have the minimum privileges that they need to do their job and keep it that way. But you know, every once in a while, somebody needs to be privileged to do something important, change some configuration setting. And that's what privileged identity management is or privileged access management is to what is the process we're going to elevate Rick's 
account privileges so he can make some change in the configuration. Is that what we're talking about? It's uh, it's true. It is. Uh, it's very uh, common in the um, non-cloud or on-premise world, Rick. At least from my experience, this is kind of the standard scenario for privilege elevation. And the concept of least privilege enforces the smallest possible scope without really preventing the admin to do their job. That's the concept of least privilege. Now, when you bring it to the cloud world, here's what we're seeing that's uh, it's a lot more of a popular and more of a common trend. It's uh, especially when you step into the, the agile development in the DevOps world. Uh, a lot of the users, actually, almost everything they do on a daily basis could be uh, qualified as a, a privileged activity. Like, for example, spinning up AWS resources, storage resources, compute resources, Lambda, and so on, on a daily basis. And it's like normal work for them. When you step into that world, that, you know, occasionally having to step up your uh, access level to privilege no longer holds true. It's like your normal level of privilege. That's why privileges in the cloud and privileged activity and access in the cloud kind of a whole different beast from the security standpoint. Well, that's all good stuff, Art, but we're going to have to leave it there. That's Art Pagosian, the CEO of Brideff. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Rick. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Thomas Etheridge. He's Senior Vice President of Services at CrowdStrike. Thomas, always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, I want to touch base with you today on MDR, that's Managed Detection and Response. Uh, what can you share with us today? Thanks, Dave. It's great to be back. Uh, managed Detection and Response, MDR, is uh, a term that's been around for a couple of years now. Uh, the way CrowdStrike looks at that, it's really about focusing on outcomes. Uh, organizations need, and in some cases require, uh, the ability to be able to get visibility across all their endpoint estate, identify, see incidents in real time when they're happening, and be able to remediate those incidents quickly enough so that a small incident doesn't become a big breach. And uh, that is what MDR is designed to focus in on. It's the managing uh, your endpoints, detecting and responding to incidents when they occur, and then remediating those incidents so that a small incident doesn't become a big one. You know, particularly for those small and medium-sized businesses, is is this something that's approachable for them? Can can they achieve something with this? The answer is absolutely. Um, 
MDR really is uh, designed in many cases to help supplement and uh, offset the gaps that many smaller organizations are struggling with in terms of staffing and skills uh, to be able to respond quickly enough and detect and remediate incidents fast enough so that they don't become a big problem. And MDR capabilities, uh, if brought to the market properly, that are focused on outcomes and delivering uh, results to organizations, those those things can help in a big way fill some of those skill and resourcing gaps. Can you help me understand, you know, what exactly MDR does do, but then also, you know, some of the things that it doesn't do? So MDR, uh, from a CrowdStrike perspective, really is focused around uh, providing for deployment, wide scale of uh, leading EDR capability that provides Mm -hmm. a rich visibility across all the endpoints in an environment. Um, A team of folks that operate 24-7, 365 to threat hunt on that environment, um, identify any incidents of hands-on keyboard activity as well as any malicious code or nuisance code that's uh, operating in the environment that may have been deployed there through a phishing click, uh, as an example, and be able to remediate those incidents and those small those small inconsistencies in an environment faster than a threat actor can take advantage of them to carry out their trade and move laterally and potentially d- deploy ransomware. So it's really about delivering end-to-end security monitoring, deployment and management, and remediation capability. What it's typically not designed to do is to do what typical managed service providers might offer in terms of systems remediation, where you're doing a full disk re-imaging, um, you know, redeploying uh, infrastructure. Really, what most MDR service providers, including Falcon at CrowdStrike's MDR, is around doing surgical remediation. So we we keep business up and running, operational, with the least amount of disruption as possible. Um, that's done through the tooling and the the technology and the, the excellent skills of the people that sit in the MDR. What about some of the other expenses that a business faces? You know, we're we're looking at uh, growing costs for things like cyber insurance. Does MDR help uh, ease some of the pressure there? It absolutely does, Dave. We've seen a huge uh, adoption rate uh, and and uh, great feedback from insurance carriers. Uh, with the adoption of MDR for organizations, they've been uh, bitten uh, from this this outbreak in prolific ransomware across uh, the globe. And they're also savvy to the fact that threat actors are moving with a lot of ease uh, through the use of stolen credentials, as well as through um, stealthy tactics to remain persistent in an organization's environment. MDR capabilities allow for uh, organizations to move faster and to deliver the kind of uh, remediation capabilities that prevent threats from escalating quickly in an environment. And those are the things that, from an insurance perspective, lower that risk. What are your recommendations for an organization that's shopping around for this, that, that feels as though this is something they want to engage with? What sort of questions should they be asking to make sure they get the best fit for them? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of outcomes. So I would really be focusing in on questions that discern whether or not 
your MDR provider is uh, staffing 24-7, three, 365 days a year. If they're providing threat hunting capabilities with that MDR, human-based threat hunting capabilities with a team of folks that know how to discern between legitimate uh, user activity and, and threat actor activity. And if the remediation capabilities go beyond simply opening up a service ticket or sending an alert to another team that's required to follow up and do the remediation. If your MDR is actually in a hands-on way delivering surgical remediation capabilities that are not disruptive to the business and and solving that um, security gap, that, that is a key element of a successful and and impact MDR capability. All right. Well, Thomas Etheridge, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out this weekend's episode of Research Saturday, where Dave Bittner sits down with Israel Barak from Cyber Reason to discuss Operation Cuckoo Bees. Cyber Reason uncovers massive Chinese intellectual property theft operation. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Bru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.